Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Laura Hall Reisman. Today, we have Crystal Munhebak speaking about her book, Reencounters on the Korean War and Diasporic Memory Critique, published in 2020 by Temple University Press. Dr. Bak is assistant professor in the Department of Gender and Sexuality Studies at University of California, Riverside, where she teaches transnational American studies with a focus on Asian diasporic studies, visual and cultural analysis, oral history, critical militarization studies, and of course, gender and sexuality studies with a focus on women of color feminism and diasporic feminist critique. Crystal, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Laura. It's great to be in conversation with you. Oh, thank you. Um, so I wanted to kind of get started um, just by asking you how you came upon this project. Um, and I know that this is your first monograph. So how much of this work reflects your dissertation or does it not reflect your dissertation? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a great question. And, you know, I think in terms of the book project, I mean, when you sort of noted here, like many first monographs um, within academic contexts, the book initially emerged from um, dissertation work that I did um, in American studies and ethnicity at the University of California when I was there. Um, And the focus of the dissertation was really sort of thinking about, um, you know, the prolongation of the Korean War in relation to so how we re- how do we remember the Korean War when you know in a very literal sense the Korean War is one that is unended. So it's different from let's say um, remembering um, sort of different contexts like the Holocaust, for instance, right? Mm. But I would say that that is really the only just sort of the broad overarching um, uh, sort of questions that I was asking around. How do we remember um, a war that continues? And, you know, what does memory look like across sort of different transnational, transpacific spaces? You know, um, sort of what role does dominant national culture play, um, you know, in shaping different memory practices? And what does it need to think about memory in relationship to, to all, um, subaltern positionalities or sort of subversive practices? So I think those broad overarching questions were very similar. They animated my dissertation. Um, They also animated, obviously, the book project, but I think in terms of um, the different elements of the book versus dissertation is very different. So, for instance, I only kept half of one chapter 
from the dissertation in the book. So everything else is really based on um, new material um, from research that I did once I um, graduated from my program. Um, and I think in terms of sort of the other sort of um, where the pro- project started, you know, I didn't realize this until I think after I wrote the book and it was published and I was, I think in some sort of conversation with a close friend and it wasn't, we weren't conversing at all about the book. It was just about, you know, our family's histories with the Korean war, with migration, um, with different forms of colonial violence, you know, U S based, but also Japanese based. Um, and I was sort of complaining in terms of how little I actually know about, um, you know, my family history, just knowing sort of the broad strokes of, my parents' history and being really frustrated with that kind of absence. And then my friend reminded me, well, you just wrote a book on, on the Korean war and how people remember the Korean war in relationship to, but also beyond silence. So I think sort of um, maybe a more vague answer to that question of, you know, where does, where does the book emerge from? I think it is really from, um, you know, the experiences my experiences um, with the Korean War and sort of also thinking about some of the memories I have of friends who also grew up with the Korean War and sort of the absence and presence of the Korean War in their everyday lives. Wow, okay, yeah, great. Um, And actually, I guess that makes me um, sort of question, uh, give you an even sort of broader question about sort of how you got in uh, to academia, really. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a question that I, I like to ask people because, um, um, you know, listeners can get a sense of, you know, how do you kind of get into academia? What sort of drives you to do the work that you do? Um, so if maybe you can speak to that. Sure. Um, I never really know how to answer that question because it's such a, I think my um, my entry to Academia. Sometimes I describe it as not accidental per se, but definitely not planned. Um, you know, I graduated from undergrad um, in 2002. You know, I worked in a think tank for a few years in New York, hated it, moved out to the Bay Area, um, and really became involved with um, sort of anti-violence work, especially around domestic violence within um, sort of immigrant refugee communities. I worked at a domestic violence shelter and became more involved with um, work that I think now um, people often refer to as, you know, community accountability or transformative justice. But that, you know, I think when I was really heavily involved with that work, of course, um, there were some other um, other descriptions that were used. But, you know, I was really involved with domestic violence work and then found myself to social um, social work school or, or trying to get my master's in social work. I'm in New York, really hated that. <laughs> and then um, found myself, you know, I don't really know how into doing more oral history work. And I think part of what I realize now is sort of my um, affinity for oral history was really sort of focusing on sort of my investments in memory and sort of how people narrate their experiences of violence within very different contexts. So for instance, when I was doing domestic violence work at a shelter, so my conversation with survivors was so different from the initial intake that I would do on the phone to, um, you know, helping or supporting uh, uh, survivors and sort of helping them prep for um, testimonies that they would give within legal context, or so really thinking about how the ways that we narrate violence 
um, and the ways that people listen to experiences of violence. It's not, you know, it's about sort of the spaces that we're located in, right? Sort of the social, political, cultural context. So I think that's what really drew me into oral history work. Um, so I was in a master's program in oral history and I can't, you know, I, you know, technically it's an academic master's program, but I think I was one of two, two people, maybe three people in my cohort of 10 or so who even who ended up going into a doctorate program. Everyone else, you know, they were creative writers, um, they're performance artists, um, you know, a couple went into law, I think. So it was a really sort of very diverse um, sort of cohort of, of people. But, you know, that, I guess, was a kind of entry point into academia. But, you know, honestly, even when I went into my doctorate program um, at USC, I was very open to not, I think what drew me into academia in terms of a graduate doctorate program were sort of the questions that were animating my work around, you know, narrative practices, memory work, you know, returning a little bit more concretely to um, sort of um, the Korean American sort of populace at large. Um, but it wasn't necessarily because I wanted to become a professor. It was really an interest in those questions and being open to, you know, teaching at some point within academia or doing museum work or doing sort of broader critical educational work, doing organizing work and using my training to support that. Um, so it was a very sort of non-linear path in many ways. Mm, yeah, no, that's um, that's a really nice way to describe your, your process. Um, okay, so... Um, I guess kind of getting into your uh, book here, um, mm -hmm. you begin your introduction with an introduction of Pudechige, which mm -hmm. is army-based stew. Mm -hmm. um, so tell us more about the significance of this food within Korean, Korean American history and mm -hmm. how you're connecting it to your own work. Mm -hmm. So Pudechige, which, um, you know, you really nicely stated is, you know, literally army-based stew, right, when you translate it from um, Korean into English. And, you know, it's a food that I grew up with. It's, you know, my mom, um, you know, cooked it once in a while. I would have it. I grew up in Southern California. My father um, worked in um, both Garden Grove in Los Angeles, and we would have it once in a while um, you know, at restaurants. Uh, or sort of different iterations of it. And, you know, pudajiga is literally sort of a combination. It's a stew, right? Sort of a hearty stew, a combination of different vegetables, cabbage, green onions, um, and sort of berries. Um, and then sort of different, like an assortment of sort of other um, foods, like primarily sort of um, canned foods, right? So spam or sausages, um, ramen noodles. Um, so sort of this hearty stew from this very sort of disparate combination of different items. Um, and it has particular significance within the Korean War because it really originated, you know, during, um, during the time of um, sort of uh, U.S. military occupation immediately after um, the end of World War II. Um, and, um, it was a, it was sort of a, um, you know, a dish that really emerged from starvation. So cranes were um, starving and in order to, you know, make, you know, some sort of edible, um, dish, they would, um, often find scraps of spam or sausage near or in sort of within the vicinity of U.S. Army, um, 
sort of bases or um, where the U.S. military was, and then would sort of combine the scraps, which were literally thrown away by you know, soldiers, and then combine it with whatever they had um, sort of within their own vicinity in terms of vegetables and spices <clears throat> um, and water. So it's literally a dish that emerged from scarcity, from um, violence, from um, you know this kind of um, really uneven um, encounter between U.S. soldiers and Korean civilians living, um, you know, in the peninsula, sort of before, during, and after the Korean War. But it's, of course, a dish that became really popular, um, um, sort of as time passed. Um, you know, I mentioned in my book that in the introduction that um, and Chiyonyo, um writes about this, who's a historian at Northwestern, um, the ways that um, you know Korean women when they married. <clears throat> Um, you know, U.S. soldiers and would immigrate to the U.S., they would also bring this dish and make sort of different versions and iterations. And it sort of found its way to, you know, different restaurants, you know, more sort of primarily bars or sort of late night foods, but became a pretty popular um, item to the extent that, you know, I think Puda Jiga has been featured on, um, you know, Anthony Bourdain's show, um, I think Parts Unknown and um, sort of also, I think um, here in LA, Jonathan Gold, who um, you know was a very famous um, sort of food writer, passed away recently. Wrote about it in the LA Times, so you know it's a popular food and it's often described as sort of an East-West fusion. And you know what always strikes me is when Pudachi gets mentioned, you know, in sort of popular American media, there's there's a sort of um, you know maybe a very brief reference to its origins and its association with the U.S. military, but there's really never a sort of deeper excavation of um, you know the kind of violent histories um, that are affixed to the Pudachi in terms of. U.S. military occupation, in terms of sort of asymmetrical um, relations, sort of gendered, racialized, sexualized relations between the U.S. and Korea, as well as sort of the diasporic ramifications, right, of what happens um, sort of with the unending sort of continuing war. Um, so I, I just, I thought it was um, a really good sort of starting point for the book because it really encompasses sort of different elements that I take on sort of in the book, again, in relationship to the continuation of the Korean War in the 21st century. You know, how do we think about a war that literally hasn't ended, right? So there was no treaty that was signed. Um, division continues, but a war that has also, you know, taken on such diverse forms and formations um, and ramifications and the ways in which um, the Korean War, in terms of ramifications, takes such hyper-visible forms like the Pudachige, but it's often coded or um, seen or named as something other than war, right? So in the case of Pudachige, it's sort of a popular East-West fusion dish that um, sort of speaks to um, sort of multicultural assimilation or integration and so forth. Um, so I just, I thought it was a good um, sort of starting point um, for the book. Yeah, I I, I uh, agree with that as well. Um, I thought it was a nice way to kind of get the book started because mm -hmm. it does, as you say, like it um, encompasses so many things um, in it that um, for the layperson who may not have any uh, background in Korean history or, you know, related to um, 
uh, Korea in any way, uh, it's difficult to to recognize that. But I think those of us, especially those of us who are uh, working in this field, um, that uh, that sort of fusion at, that you speak of um, has so much more, so many more ramifications involved in just this mere dish. Um, so yeah, um, and I guess I would say like. Would you also, um, you talk about uh, diasporic memory works, and I, I feel mm-hmm. that this is um, sort of uh, a way to describe um, the objects of your analysis in your work. Um, and so, um, so including Pudechige, um, mm-hmm. you also talk about um, oral histories, um, mm-hmm. time-based performances and video installations, mm-hmm. um, and I guess if you can speak a little bit more to like how you're defining diasporic memory works um, to your larger project, that would be good. Yes. Yeah, no, sure. So I talk a little bit about it um, as sort of a cr- critical analytic um, in, in my introduction. And, you know, the way that I really initially came to sort of um, engaging with sort of the diasporic or the diasporic um, is really through my training uh, as um, sort of a critical ethnic studies scholar. So really engaging with queer of color critique, um, queer diasporic critique. So, you know, the work of um, really important scholars like Gayatri Gopanath, uh, Fatima Al-Tayeb, um, David Ng. And, you know, their work is very, very different, of course, but I think sort of a, um, the connective tissue, you know, sort of um, across these works and, and sort of scholarship, bodies of scholarship is the ways that each of these scholars engage um, with the diasporic. And of course, these are not the only you know, scholars who um, engage with um, diaspora. I'm just sort of naming them as um, particular influences. And, you know, often we think about the diasporic as um, sort of within very... Um, you know, ironically, uh, sort of national or nationalistic, um, sort of heteronormative, um, sort of very bio family, biological family, kin, sort of blood kin related. So the diasporic literally as the dispersal of a people, right? And sort of people unified through sort of ethnicity, um, so very ethnocentric through blood, through family, through marriage. Um, and sort of that dispersal, um, you know, um, happening because of, um, you know, different, you know, disasters from sort of environmental disasters to um, uh, genocide and so forth. On. So, for instance, the diasporic is um, that term is used um, sort of referring to the dispersal of a people from a point of origin, often in sort of early texts that engage sort of the Jewish diaspora. Um, and I, you know, sort of that sort of understanding, I think has real relevance in particular contexts, but I think within sort of the work that I'm doing, engaging with, because it's really, um, trying to center a critical sort of feminist analysis that, um, is really critical or challenges sort of more heteronormative national contexts. It was really important for me to think about the diasporic in different ways and the ways that, Aang or, um, you know, Tayeb, um, Al-Tayeb um, and Gopinath sort of talk about the diasporic is in relationship to difference. So rather than thinking about the diasporic as a scattering of um, 
and sort of a byproduct of, um, you know, a catastrophe? How might we rethink the diasporic um, as a verb? So not just a noun, but a verb, right? So thinking about um, the ways that uh, a particular constellation of um, subjects of figures or different spaces are entwined or connected, not because of ethnic similarities or blood kinship, but because of underlying social conditions, because of political conditions, and the ways that those connections are not just about sameness, but it's also about the different kinds of the differences that are created, right? So, um, you know, for instance, thinking about if you look at sort of the book as a whole, it's really thinking about Korea through difference, right? So different chapters that take on sort of different diasporic subjectivities like Korean transnational adoptees or um, sort of second, third, fourth generation Korean Americans who grew up, you know, in the U.S. um, to sort of different memory workers or performance um, who are linked to Cheju. So their linkages to each other are not, again, through a sort of um, very contained um, narrow focus or understanding of Korean ethnicity, but it's really thinking about multiple histories of colonialism, of imperialism, both in relationship to Japanese and U.S. Um, sort of military occupation. Um, you know, thinking about um, the impact of sort of communist or anti-communist discourse, right, in, in producing different subjectivities. And again, thinking about, of course, the Korean War, right, as um, and the ramifications of Korean War, of the Korean War as sort of connecting very different subjectivities. So sort of a long-winded answer. <laughs> but again, it's sort of thinking about the diasporic not in relationship to um contain notions of the family or the nation, but really sort of more in relationship to the transnational, the transpacific linkages that are created through social political conditions, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. No, this is, that's great. And I think um, that kind of transitions really well into my next question, which is uh, about uh, the title of your book, uh, Reencounters. So obviously it's, it's the title, um, but it also is clearly the organizing principle of the whole work. Um, and so let, I'm just going to read um, your def- definition or one of your definitions on page 13 that you mm-hmm. use, which is uh, reencounters as a concept, in fact, indexes the damaging consequences of a conflict that continues to affect millions of lives on and beyond the Korean Peninsula. Rather, in suggesting this shift in foci, I underscore how trauma-based framings that foreground the psychic afterlife or post-memory of a catastrophic event do not fully capture the historical, social, and political complexities that characterize the contemporaneity of the Korean War. Um, So um, with that, um, what is re-encounters doing that that say um, the, the concept of haunting is not? Um, mm-hmm, and perhaps mm-hmm. to also put it in more context, how do your objects of analysis benefit from the concept of reencounters? Mm-hmm. Wow, those are really great questions. So um, it took me a really long time to sort of um, conceptualize and um, you know really arrive at this term of reencounters, and you know even still, I think about it as a shape shifting term in many ways. Um, 
And I think with that said, I also want to say that, you know, in the book and in terms of like the paragraph, the excerpt that you just read, you know, the, the term re-encounters is, um, you know, it's engaging with and perhaps trying to sort of um, have readers think beyond this term of hauntings because, or afterlife, because, you know, they've been such important terms within Korean sports scholarship in relationship to the Korean War. But I also want to make it clear, hopefully this was clear in the book too, that I think these terms are so important. And um, it's not to say that re-encounters is um, wholly, you know, intention with these terms. I think both, let's say, hauntings and re-encounters sort of thinks about and tries to engage with the Korean War beyond sort of um, definitive, you know, temporal markers in terms of, you know, the Korean War started in 1950 and in 1953. We know that that, you know, isn't the case. Um, and there's a way that sort of both terms tries to sort of really capture or sort of, you know, track ramifications that might not be immediately perceptible, right? So I think there's a lot of sort of generative um, engagement with sort of afterlife or hauntings. And um, sort of my work is so indebted um, to these critical concepts. I think where it does maybe, where there is a departure point is that I think at times, a couple of things. I think a couple, you know, often when we, draw on these terms of hauntings or afterlives. I mean, hauntings tends to emphasize that which is unseen. So literally invisible or um, invisible to the naked eye or um, sort of not registered through the optical field. Um, You know, it really sort of um, often refers to traces, right? To sort of these barely discernible traces um, of um, the war of the Korean war. Um, and, you know, I think this notion of hauntings as well as afterlife is really um, in intimate conversation with this notion of post-memory, right? And I mentioned this, of course, you know, in the book, too. And post-memory, you know, is a term that, of course, comes from the really important work of Marion Hirsch and explicitly in relationship to the Holocaust and the medium of photography and um, the importance of photographs, of indexing um you know, these sort of haunting memories that continue um, sort of beyond a certain point, right? And the ways that second generation, third generation um, subjects who didn't live through a certain catastrophe still inherit uh, inherit sort of um, the emotional or affective um, traces of a catastrophe. And I think that's really where re-encounters sort of departs it is sort of thinking through those registers in some ways, but I think the question that I was really thinking about is, you know, gosh, like even something like Pudetschike, right? I'm really interested in, you know, each chapter really sort of engages with ramifications that are hyper-visible, right? That are tangible, that are palpable, um, that have, um, you know, has roots or anchor points within the Korean War, but has shifted or sort of changed in form. Um, but, you know, because of the temporality of the Korean War and the nature of the Korean War and how it's shifted from an armed conflict to, you know, something very different, right? In some ways, although militarization and armed conflict, of course, still plays a role. I was interested in thinking about, rather than visibility or invisibility, perceptibility and legibility. You know, why is it that we call certain things, um, you know, certain names, um, which really obscures, if not wholly erases, its militarized origins. Um, you know, and 
in sort of the original manuscript, I really wanted to include a chapter on the demilitarized zone because I think the Korean DMZ is a really um, great example of the ways that war, um, you know, changes over time, right? And the DMZ is a little bit different because it is, you know, linked to war in these very specific ways as sort of the most um, visible signifier, I think, in some ways of Korean division. But, you know, within the past 30 years, you have um, the Korean DMZ, um, literally the geography and the space of the Korean DMZ being, um, becoming property, right? So respect. Uh, thinking about speculative um, property, the ways that um, sort of more and more people are actually um, sort of buying property within um, and sort of within the vicinity of the Korean DMZ, the ways that the DMZ itself has become a really sort of popular tourist site uh, for different kinds of consumption, including sort of cultural production, sort of art exhibitions and art shows. And I know that um, Lena Kim is coming out with a book um that engages with the DMZ through a different lens, right? Through sort of a ec- critical ecological lens and thinking about um, the DMZ as um, a kind of environmental haven and trying to also trouble that. But um, I think that's really the kind of key question I want to think about in relationship to reencounters. You know, how do we think about war in the 21st century when it isn't just about invisibility? or, um, you know, indiscernible traces when it's actually about hyper-visibility and tangibility and palpability, um, but the ways it's named and renamed, right, uh, as other things. And I think that kind of analytic really lends itself. And, um, you know, that analytic emerged from the works themselves, you know, wasn't that I came up with this concept and then applied it (laughs) to these different works. I think, you know, I became interested in sort of thinking about um, a constellation of different interdisciplinary forms and formations and after sort of engaging with them deeply and not exactly knowing why I was so, um, you know, affixed to these particular, um, you know, art practices or memory practices, it became really evident to me that, um, you know, again, sort of thinking about the Korean War in the 21st century in relationship to legibility and perception was a connective tissue. Um, so again, that's a really long-winded answer. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off uh no that's uh that's a great answer and i think um maybe just even adding to that i would say that um i think for me you know i'm very much uh also indebted to the work of um folks who you know talk about haunting um especially grace cho um in terms of uh korean war um absolutely yeah um and i think the 
for me, I think the difference was to, uh, because of your objects of analysis, which is looking often at um, engaged sort of artworks as well as like community endeavors, um, like the oral histories that you talk about, which I'll ask mm-hmm. a little bit mm-hmm. later. Um, I feel that, you know, this, that engagement, there's a kind of a back and forth. Um, and so to me, that the re-encounters in that way makes more sense um, because it's not just about receiving, which I feel is what is happening with hauntings, mm-hmm. um, but a, a kind of active engagement with the history. Um, and, uh, and so to me, in a way, th- that, that's also what re-encounters um, speaks to, uh, at least in my I, reading of it. Yeah, and that's such a great observation. I mean, I, you know, I think in terms of <clears throat> explanation that I was providing, it was sort of thinking about the sort of theoretical and conceptual, right, sort of elements of, of re-encounters. But I think what you're pointing to, too, is sort of the aesthetic um, elements of like the literal sort of cultural formations or practices that I talk about and the ways in which they literally engage in um, sort of animated forms of encounter, right? So their, their um, liveness and animacy is just such an important part of um, the analysis that I do in the book. And I guess just maybe as a last note, I think in thinking about this, again, I go back to this concept of, of post-memory. And again, I, I mentioned this in the book, you know, post-memory is a term that has been used um, in so many different contexts, right? In the past, you know, 20, 25 years. And I think that speaks to the power of this concept of post-memory, which again, is so closely affiliated with hauntings. Um but again, I think if you look at sort of the scholarly origins of this term, it is very specific in terms of both mediums of photography as well as event, right? Um, the Jewish Holocaust. So a question that I was thinking a lot about maybe theoretically um, was, you know, what happens when we do use these really powerful and potent terms, um, you know, from um, scholarship, but when, um, you know, when it's used so many times that um, perhaps the specificities in terms of both medium, but also sort of political, social, historical context might be lost. So what happens when you use a term that is very specific to a particular sort of context and you sort of, um, you know, um, use it or, um, you know, translate it into a different context. What are both sort of the pros or the benefits and the sort of generative implications, but what is also lost from that, right? Mm-hmm. So I was, I was thinking a lot about that because I engaged with post-memory so much as a grad student and remember feeling so moved by this concept, but also feeling like didn't quite capture um, sort of what, what, I, you know, had been engaging with in terms of scholarship with the Korean War, but also just speaking with 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 people, having interviews and so forth on. Mm. Um yes, yeah, so um yeah, speaking of post-memory and actually photographs that you you mentioned, um mm-hmm. I wanted to also ask about um the Life magazine article that um mm-hmm. you used. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I, I was very drawn to that. I mean, as a, as someone who enjoys looking through archives myself, um, mm-hmm. I was quite piqued. Um, uh, and so I was also wondering, um, well, one, you know, how did you find this? And mm-hmm. two, um, I guess, how do you connect that, uh, to, um, what you talk about as cold war chrono normativity? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your first, so this is, um, I think the photographs you were referring to is from the first formal chapter in multiple migrations and it's actually a photograph. So the series of photographs that are included are from a life magazine, um, issue, um, in November, 1951. Um, and, um, you know, it captures a series of photographs that captures when um, a U.S. sergeant named um, Johnny Morgan and um, a Korean woman named Lee Young-soon, um, who was his bride, um, arrived um, in the U.S. Um, in Seattle in 1951. And, you know, um, this sort of visual depiction is actually not, It's it's been used quite a bit, especially the first photograph that I include with um, Lee Young Soon sort of sandwiched between um, her husband and um, his mother. Um, so it's a photograph that's actually been used quite a bit within sort of Korean American scholarship and um, you know in different contexts. So it's not a, that particular photograph is not um, is familiar, I think, to many scholars. I think what was really amazing to me were the other photographs that were included in sequence in relationship to this one photograph that is used um, quite a bit. Right. And I came across it honestly from just doing sort of being interested in for this particular chapter and sort of thinking about how has the Korean war been represented, um, you know, within um, sort of U S popular media or dominant media, especially during the 1950s and sixties, you know, what is the discourse surrounding Korean immigration to the U.S. Um, when it's so obviously linked to U.S. militarized occupation um, and war and sort of how is it phrased. And I think what's so amazing about this particular article, which um, the article is very short, it's like a paragraph or two paragraphs, and then it has, I think, a sequence of maybe seven or eight photographs, some which are, again, reproduced in this chapter, um, is that the word war never even um, emerges. <laughs> It, in the article, right? Um, I mean, there's sort of a very romanticized story of the soldier, you know, Johnny, who um, goes to Korea um, and meets sort of the love of his life. And, um, you know, there's sort of uh, descriptions of battlefields, but there's really never a direct um, reference to the Korean War and why the U.S. military um, is in Korea, right? And what's significant about the article is that, you know, Lee Young-soon is also renamed, right? So um, she's renamed as blue. So that's the color blue. I mean, that's really the name that appears in the article. And I think the reason why um, this particular article in these series, sequence of photographs are important is that, um, and I forgot whether I just noted this, but, um, you know, Lee Young-soon is often um, described as the first Korean bride who arrived arrived in the U.S. Um, And I think in terms of thinking about sort of um, chrononormativity, you know, I was thinking about the ways that the sequence of photographs really perfectly captures and is a sort of visual depiction or reflection of how um, Korean immigration to the U.S. is described in popular, you know, um, publications during the 1950s from you know, the LA Times, New York Times, Life Magazine, Better Home and Garden. Um, again, there are 
articles that obviously talk about the Korean War, but you know, a lot of these publications actually um, erase these experiences of war and really try to angle these um, experiences of immigration and um, you know immigration to the U.S. as immigration linked to um, marriage, right, or heteronormativity, um, to um, a desire for better educational or occupational um, opportunities, right? So again, thinking about that kind of coding that happens when war is renamed as sort of these other things. And Chianya talks about this too. And in this series of photographs, you can literally see this happening from the moment that Leon Soon renamed Blue Arise in the U.S. Um, to um, her, um, you know, her and her husband at the dinner table with his parents praying, right? Um, you know, praying and eating sort of what might be um, described as sort of typical American fare, right, in terms of food. Um, to sort of the last photograph that's um, featured um, in the archive of photographs of the um of the photographer Wayne Miller, but this particular photograph was actually not included um, in the Life magazine series. Um, and it's of Johnny and Yongsun actually in bed together. Um, sort of, again, maybe an indexing, not only like a post-coital moment, but also sort of reproduction, right? So um, the reproduction of, uh, of, of children, for instance. Um, so, you know, it's a really interesting sequence of photographs. Um, again, the last photograph wasn't included in the Life magazine that I had originally looked at, but I became interested in the photographer Wayne Miller um, because he had actually taken an extensive, um, you know, number of photographs in different um, sort of militarized contexts. So I came across his estate um his uh, sort of photography estate, and it's online at least through a good portion um, through Matnam Foundation. So um, that's really sort of how I came across that last photograph of Johnny and Young Student Bed. Yeah, I, I was, I, I was, I mean, even now, you know, in 2020, when I saw that photograph, I felt a little bit like, oh, I'm, I'm in interrupting them somehow, you know, looking at that photograph. It was, it was such an intimate photograph. Um, and so what you say about it and sort of the reasons why maybe they didn't include it, I mean, to me, it makes entirely a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, um, yeah, no, I just thought that there was this, um, I really liked how you talked about that sort of connection to this sort of Cold War sort of I guess, you know, like normative time or however you want to sort of reference that. Um, Mm -hmm. And and then I feel like um, you sort of juxtapose that with um, the oral histories that you talk about in that chapter, as well as in the the next chapter. Um, So, um, and I I wanted to ask about, you know, uh, well, first of all, um, I really liked how for the intergenerational Korean American oral history project that you talk about, um, the way in which they uh, look at, um, or interview their, um, interviewees, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a interviewer narrator sort of dyad that you mentioned, but mm-hmm. rather it's the like multiple listeners who mm-hmm. are, um, part of that process and they themselves then also sort of contribute to that. Um, by talking about um, their own experiences of, of how the war um, has indirectly impacted them as well. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I was wondering if maybe um, you can talk about that in relation to also um, how do silences as fragmented knowledges that you talk about, um, how do those fit into this process of testimony? Mm-hmm. Okay, so for the, your first question, is it just sort of describing um, the intergenerational yeah. project? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I loved, I mean, and not loved into the past, but I, I really just love this project. So the um, second um, formal chapter of the book, Orality, um, discusses a very, very different oral history project. Um, and I say very different in the sense, you know, I was trained as an oral historian and I am sort of coming to this point where I'm actually sort of um, questioning and challenging a lot of my formal training. But, um, you know, this particular um, oral history project that I discuss in this chapter, the Intergenerational Korean American Oral History Project, and I know it's also been titled um, sort of differently within sort of different contexts, um, but that was sort of um, the title that was provided by um, the folks that I interviewed for this project. It's a really, really powerful um, project that tries to sort of rethink oral history um, not necessarily as a research method per se, but as a very sort of generative and generous sort of practice of gathering, right, and of healing um, within the context of the Korean War. And, you know, sort of what does it mean to think about the oral history, not as sort of a single um a single narrative, but as a process, as a process that's ongoing and unended and sort of shape-shifting, right? Um, and what does it mean to think about this sort of process as, as sort of truly intergenerational? Um, so that's sort of, um, you know, that was really sort of my initial um, attraction to um, the project. Again, sort of thinking about the process-oriented um, nature of the of the oral history project, the very intergenerational um, sort of conceptualization, and the fact that it really centered not speaking necessarily, but listening. Hence, sort of um, the title of the book is not oral, you know, O R A L is oral, right? A U R E L. So listening, well, you know, what? How do we rethink listening and sort of deep, careful, attentive, grounded listening as a really powerful practice? of um, sort of memory making, a memory um, contestation of resistance, you know, within the context of talking about or narrating the Korean War um, in in the 21st um, century. So I think on page 75, you know, there's sort of a very basic, I guess it's a diagram, but it's sort of a summary of, you know, what the... um, what the paradigm, what the interview paradigm looks like within this project. And it's a very complicated project. It's, um, you know, seven different, let's see, seven or different eight steps. And again, really involving and centering um, listening. And, you know, as you know, Delora, um, you know, the listening that happens or the sort of narration that happens, the listening practices, it isn't a one-to-one um, uh, sort of method, right? It's, um, a narrator providing um, sort of a context of what they experienced in relationship to the Korean War, but doing it in a setting where they're really held and they're held by multiple listeners in the room, right? Um, and I think the way that Sok Jung Hung, who's one of the um, participants of, of this project and someone that I interviewed extensively um, for this chapter, you know, described the role of multiple listeners in relation to multiple purposes, right? I mean, on the one hand, 
Um, there are participants who weren't, who wanted to, um, of course, participate in the interview process, but they weren't bilingual. Um, so, um, you know, they needed sort of bilingual listeners and translators in the room or sort of interviewers per se, but also sort of thinking about how even when someone is narrating something, it doesn't mean that everyone is going to interpret it the same way, right? So having multiple listeners in a room, um, again, is so spacious and generous in terms of it. It allows for multiple meanings to exist in relationship to each other, even if um, sort of their, their intention. And, you know, often um, folks who were interviewed, at least in the later stages of the project, you know, they're sort of older generation, right? So they're first generation folks who had um, literally survived the armed conflict or who had sort of directly grown up um, during the Pak Chung-hee sort of dictatorship era. Um, but, you know, a lot of the interviewers who, you know, sort of self-identified as second, third, fourth generation, you know, they were also impacted by the war in different ways, right? In terms of citizenship, in terms of being adoptees. Um, and they also had to, even if they weren't interviewed per se by elders, they actually interviewed each other. So everyone in that space held multiple roles of being both interviewer um, as well as sort of narrator, which I think is also another really um, sort of powerful paradigm shift in terms of at least how I was trained to do oral history. Um, and I think maybe going back to your question around um, silencing and the ways, you know, that silence, you know, the different ways that silence um, sort of impacts sort of narrative, um, narrative construction or sort of giving narrative within spaces like this. You know, I start the chapter with this really interesting visual depiction um, of silence um, by Christine Sunkin, who is a Korean-American um, sound artist who is also deaf. And, you know, she really thinks about silence um, through vibrational means, right? So not just in terms of sort of um, the sonic, but also through sort of um, felt, um, sort of felt tactile vibrational means. And the ways that silence um, is never just about complete absence, right? Or it's not about complete absence. It's not about noiselessness. It's just about a diffusion, right, of um, certain vibrations. And I thought that was just such a beautiful and powerful um, understanding of silence that really resonates with how I sort of talk about silence in this book, especially in relationship to this project, right? That silence, even in terms of the stories that aren't told by sort of elders in terms of the art conflict, um, you know, they're actually, they exist, but in very different ways that might not be immediately perceptible. Rather, you know, if it's through sort of actions or sort of sentiments or emotions, that these kinds of experiences of violence actually do exist, even if we can't sonically register them, right? Um, so they exist through, again, emotional resonances, um, but they also exist through the stories that we choose to tell and don't tell, Um you know, they exist in relationship to how survivors of war choose to raise their families. They do have sort of bio, biological families. Um, they also relate to sort of um, the continuing implications of the war. So sort of at a later chapter or later, um, sort of the last you know few ch- uh, pages of the second chapter orality, you know, Sokchang Han gives this really powerful, it's a long excerpt, but I thought it was really important to 
include, I'm just trying to find it here, um, of sort of experiences of violence. Hold on. Let me just find this excerpt. I can find it. Oh, okay. So it's on page 87. Um, you know, so she talks about the ways that experiences, again, for those who directly sort of um, survive the armed conflict, um, the ways that they live with those um, experiences in very direct, palpable um, ways, right? So, um, you know, for survivors of bombings, you know, often sort of loud noises or um, even the sort of noise of crying children, I mean, it can be very triggering, right? Um, or the ways in which people continue to do laundry in a certain way, right? Or the ways that, um, you know, she gives this really powerful um, sort of observation of how um, survivors of the war often use hobak or zucchini leaves as sort of medicine, right? To sort of patch wounds or whatnot and how that was a habit that was continued, you know, long after the sort of quote-unquote armed conflict. Um, so again, this understanding, I think, of, of um, silence as not absence or noiselessness, but as continuing vibrations that are felt, even if they're not named, right, in certain ways, it is um, really powerful, um, and it's one that resonates with this chapter. Yeah, great. Um, so I, I, that kind of uh, transitions into um, my next queries, which is about, you know, uh, transnational adoptees, um, especially mm-hmm. in relation to what you just talked about in terms of mm-hmm. silence, um, as well as multiple meanings um, that you mentioned um, through oral histories. Um, how do transnational adoptees, and in this case, you also use um, their artworks um, to talk through uh, the, the Korean War. How do they sort of fit into um, this larger project? Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, I remember when I, this book went into peer review, you know, and so the commentary that I received was so helpful. Um, it was really important for me not to um, sort of isolate adoptee experience. I mean, you know, of course, adoptee experience, and I'm not an adoptee, so I definitely can't, you know, speak from that positionality. This is sort of more, again, through my critical engagement with um, sort of cultural work um, by different adoptees who, are, you know, self-identify in very different ways and not necessarily even as adoptees, as a primary quote-unquote identity, right? Um, and sort of engaging with, um, you know, sort of um, different artists through interviews or, or, or um, sort of whatnot. But it was really important for me to be able to locate the experiences, um, you know, of transnational adoptees within this broader lens, again, of a diasporic memory critique. So how do we think about adoptees, not necessarily as a sort of discrete populace per se, but as military subjects of war who are enmeshed within sort of this critical nexus, right, of um, sort of militarized subjects. Um, so that was really sort of um, my point of entry into sort of critically engaging with um, adoptee, uh, with critical cultural works by transnational adoptees. And, you know, one of the artists that I talk about in chapter three returns, which specifically, you know, tackles transnational adoption, Jane Jen Kaisen, I talk about her work sort of elsewhere, um, including in the, um, in chapter four and sort of reference her work, um, I think in the conclusion of the book um, as well. Um, 
But in terms of sort of the, the critical sort of um, cultural analysis that happens, I think the two pieces or the two cultural works that I talk about in this chapter. So one is um, a sort of a multimedia work by Kate Hurst Reads called um, Sex Education for Finding um, Face in the 21st Century. Um, and I say it's multimedia because, you know, in the book, I primarily engage with the video um, sort of recording of it, but of course it was a live performance um, and it was sort of an experimental video that was also made. So I was really looking at the documentation, um, you know, of the, of the performance. And then I was looking at a very, very different work by um, Jane Jin Kaisen, um, which is sort of an experimental um, uh, film called um, The Woman, the Orphan, and the tiger. And I think what drew me to these particular works is the ways in which they, um, you know, sort of locate transnational adoption, of course, specifically in relationship to the Korean War, but again, thinking about the ways that it's been diluted, right, in terms of its origins. And you know, certainly I'm not the only person who has talked about this. There's such a critical genealogy of um, transnational adoption scholarship, especially within Korean American studies that I'm really sort of engaging with and indebted to. Um, but for instance, with Kate Hurst-Reed's work, you know, she talks about, um, you know, her performance is really the performance of a quote-unquote crazy person, right? Someone who uh, might be, in terms of, um, you know, what she has on might be, um, she might be uh, sort of visually identified as, you know, a sort of young high school student, she's in sort of a uniform and, um, you know, has um, sort of a visibly um, protruding um, stomach. So again, sort of those visuals of pregnant, um, you know, single young woman and sort of trying to think about the relevance of single parenthood and motherhood of pregnancy of giving labor literally to, you know, um, or giving birth to children as a form of labor and connecting that to the transnational adoption industry. Um, and thinking about that again, within the broader context of racial, sexual, gender-based violence in relationship to the war. Right. And then with Jane Jen Kaisen's work, it's really thinking about transnational adoption, not again, as sort of a discrete, um, phenomenon, but as something that is so deeply entrenched within this, you know, broader history, um, historical trajectory of racial, gender, sexualized violence um, in the Korean Peninsula um, in relationship to both Japanese colonialism and the Korean War and U.S. military occupation. So I think both of these works, um, again, sort of, you know, going back to this term of re-encounters and, you know, how do we think about visible ramifications that are coded as something other than more militarization as direct byproducts of war. Right. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the way you kind of weaved in their works um, was really helpful to kind of get that broader understanding of, you know, where, you know, just like you said, oftentimes I think um, discourse around adoptees, um, it seems almost as if it's just uh, a separate sort of issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, as you bring it together, you know, it's transnational adoptees, uh, mixed race Koreans from the Cold War period, mm-hmm. you know, all of these um, sort of uh, marginalized figures um, are mm-hmm. all products of the war um, that um, are um, not quite recognized, but yet still there. Um, and so, um, 
so yeah, I really, I was, I was really sort of, um, I, I'm, I want to see, especially the one, um, Kate Reese, her, uh, Kate hers Reese, um, work. Cause I, I just reading through your description of her doing this, like I was like, oh my God, I'm sweating. Just thinking about her doing this. Incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah okay. it's, it's really incredible. And I think the documentation, you know, I'm not, I haven't looked at her website in the past two or three months, but I think the last time I looked, some of the documentation is actually still online. Mm, so you can okay. look at it. Okay. Great. Yeah. Great. Um, okay. So, um, so now moving on to, uh, your, uh, final sort of, uh, I guess chapter, so to speak, uh-huh. um, although you do have, um, that section about, uh, uh, with poetry and photography, mm-hmm. um, Jeju mm-hmm. Island. So Jeju mm-hmm. Island, you know, is, is the space that's, both been portrayed as a vacation and a honeymoon mm-hmm. spot in Korea. Typically that is commonly the, 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 the portrayal. Um, but then it's yeah. also been portrayed as sort of a hotbed of leftist politics, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, for during the war. Um, and, um, you know, you make that connection between the Jeju massacre or incident, um, um, mm-hmm. that began on April 3rd, 1948, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to the recent construction of the Kangjong naval mm-hmm. base. Um, mm-hmm. And you also use this uh, notion of durational memory to, to mm-hmm. make these connections. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also use um, uh, works by Jane Jing Kaisen here, um, mm-hmm. as well as uh, Tohi Lee's um, mm-hmm. performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I was wondering if you can maybe kind of um, speak to that a little bit, uh, especially in relation to what you talk about as durational memory. Sure, sure. Um, so I really love both of these works um, a lot, and you know, was really in deep conversation with both Dohi Lee and Jane Jin Tyson about um, you know these works. You know, Dohi, and they're very different works. Again, I mean, Dohi Lee's work is um, a live performance um, with sort of different quote unquote chapters or segments, and. Um, you know, Jane Jin Kaisen's work that I talk about, Reiteration's Descent, is installation. But I think what's interesting about both of their work is that um, these are works in progress in the sense that they've changed forms, you know, quite a bit within a period of time. I mean, I think with Mago, the performance um, that I discussed with Dohee Lee, I mean, she, you know, that originally was performed at Uber Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco in 2014, but has been performed in sort of different spaces and different iterations. So it was really interesting for me to think about sort of the changing um configuration of both of these works. But in terms of durational memory, so I'm again really indebted in sort of thinking about the work that I'm sort of building on. And you know, it's a quotation that I include um, um, in the title page for on um, this particular chapter, I think it's on page 127. And so this work or this notion of durational memory is really indebted to the critical work of Kim Sung-ne, who's um, an anthropologist. And just to read her quote that I include there, she notes, you know, what they have survived, and this is explicitly in relationship to um, Jeju Island inhabitants with um, the Jeju Massacre, which is a seven-year sort of a massacre um, that occurred roughly between 1948 and 1955, which I talk about in the book. So she says, you know, what they have endured is an event to be endured, not a trauma to be healed. It is not part of their historical past, but of their durational present. And as such, it's both unforgotten and unforgettable. 
And again, I think it's such a poignant term that really resonates with the ways that I think about this analytic of re-encounters and the use of durational, again, sort of thinking about both the cyclic nature, right? The ways that certain, um, certain events or, um, you know, certain things in our everyday lives that are violent, um, the ways that they change form, the ways that they return in ebbs and flows, but the fact that you know, a trauma or a sort of a historical event that is violent has not yet ended, right? So rather than calling it sort of post-memory, what does it mean to think about it in relationship to the durational? As something that continues, even if it changes, um, you know, in shape or in form and has sort of different implications, you know, at different moments in time. And I think that's really important sort of for this chapter because even sort of thinking about Cheju Island, um, you know, Cheju Island of the 1940s, 50s is quite different, obviously, right, from the Cheju Island of the now. And, you know, you, you know, really um, said it nicely, Laura, in terms of the ways that Cheju Island is often discussed as sort of, you know, um, a resort or a vacation spot. You know, I think um, the South Korean government often describes it as the Hawaii, right, of Korea, which is ironical, too, in some ways, because Hawaii, of course, is a multi-colonial colonial space that has been named as paradise, but has... Um, you know, a very deep history of militarization imperialism. Um, so I think durational memory was just a really um, potent concept to capture all of these sort of um, these shifts and changes that um, Cheju Island um, has experienced in the past 50 or 60 years, um, but the ways in which sort of everyday life in, in the island remains so deeply linked to these multiple histories of colonialism, of militarization, of imperialism, including but not exclusive to the Korean War. Yeah, and I really liked how you um, end the chapter talking mm-hmm. about the unnamed monument stone. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just think that that really kind of encapsulates the the continued uh, issues that um, you know go on on Jeju, uh, as well as just you know um, in the Korean Peninsula as a whole. Um, the fact that this monument hasn't been named and mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. can't seem to be named depending mm-hmm. on the sort of political conditions of the time um and so here it is unnamed um and yet mm-hmm. still somehow um you know um commemorating um this this time um yeah yeah no and i um i remember when i visited that um, the Sasamor uh, 4.3 Monument Stone, right? That's part of the April 3rd Peace Memorial Park that's in Chiju um, City. Mm. And, you know, I was visiting as part of a group and it was just really, um, you know, the docent there was talking about the history of the Monument Stone and, you know, the different feelings or sentiments that are affixed, right, to the stone in terms of it being unnamed, you know, in part, so the anger or frustration, feeling like by not naming the stone or inscribing it, you know, for instance, with the names of those who died or passed away, it's sort of, it's um, a sort of um, a sign of dishonor in some ways, right, or sort of, um explicit forgetting or erasure and then sort of these other you know the i think the way that docent and others described it is also thinking about it as a literal reflection of how the changing nature of how the sasham or the 4.3 massacre described within not just a Cheju context but really within a south korean context right the different um discourses the different ways in which it's named um it's perceived depending on sort of who is in political power um you know 
in South Korea. And, you know, it was just such a powerful, um, you know, really moving and sort of emotional um, moment sort of shared, I think, in, in that space. And it felt like a, a good way to sort of end, end that chapter. Yeah, I, I thought it was a, a great way to end the chapter, actually. Yeah. Um, okay, so now... Um, you have, uh, last but not least, um, you've got this sort of poetry and photography section that, um, mm-hmm. uh, which I, I really, you know, it, it, how do I say, like, you know, when you're reading like text, academic text, it's just, mm-hmm. you're reading, reading, reading. And then, mm-hmm. and then here I am in this, in this section where I have to actually kind of take a pause, um, mm-hmm. and, and sort of hold back, um, sort of slow down my reading, I guess, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually really enjoyed that to, to kind mm-hmm. of slow down and then sort of, you know, meander through these, these few pages really. Um, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, I just wanted to kind of get your sort of thought process behind it. I also noticed that, you know, it is here that you also sort of, um, mention and allude to North Korea, Um, Mm -hmm. and so, yeah, I just want to sort of see where you're coming from there. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I really, really enjoyed sort of conceptualizing and thinking about this sort of, um, gosh, uh, you know, it's not quite an ending to the book, sort of the literally sort of this. Um, the last sort of segment of this book, I don't call it a conclusion. I describe it as an opening. Mm. And I think to start, like when I was finished writing sort of the bulk of the book and was thinking a lot about the conclusion, when I was so tired, <laughs> I was just like, also, you know, my, this might be an opportunity for me to sort of rethink how I want to end, quote unquote, end this book, right? And the more I thought about it, the more um, unsatisfying it felt to write a kind of formal conclusion to the book, you know, in the sense that one, the Korean war is one that is literally unending. So how might that actually be reflected, you know, in the ways in which this book at least comes to a temporary quote unquote close. Um, And then, you know, throughout the years, I was thinking a lot about the genre of the academic monograph or the book or the ways in which we write, um, of academic monographs. Of course, this is an overgeneralization. You know, people write in very different um, ways and do different positionalities. But, you know, in terms of form, um, you know, there's a sort of a kind of legible organization, right? So you have an introduction, you have chapters, and you have a conclusion and and so forth on. Um, So I thought about, you know, are there, you know, what, are there ways one to maybe destabilize this kind of organization and two, is a formal conclusion really the right way to, you know, to quote unquote end this book? You know, because again, this book is about an unending war. It's about the messiness of a war that, um, you know, has um, in some ways resisted sort of former formal closure. And, you know, how might I, even if it's unsettling or sort of confusing. So again, I remember um, reading a, a comment from a reader and sort of, um, the reader really appreciating sort of the creative format of the book, but being really confused by it. And that's actually exactly what I wanted. I mean, in the sense of providing a platform for generative questioning. So what does it mean to end a book with questions versus answers or sort of a neat ending? And again, I think that just resonated with what this book 
is about. And I think, you know, lastly, I play such a, I play the role of cultural critic in this book. And, you know, because the Korean War, again, is something that is so deeply embedded um, sort of in who I am and sort of my family's history, I really wanted to also think about myself as someone who, I mean, you know, it's not a cultural producer per se, but it's also engaging with these sort of questions from a very different positionality than of a quote unquote scholar, right? So for instance, um, you know, the poem that starts the book and that's sort of um, scattered throughout um, the conclusion or the opening is a poem that my sister wrote. Um, and, um, you know, it was really moving to have her be a part of it. I think it was important for me and my older sister did um, the artwork for the cover. And, you know, again, sort of thinking about this project as one that is um, sort of political, that is um, analytical, that's scholarly, but that is also so deeply personal. And I wanted the opening or the ending to this book to sort of reflect that. So that's really sort of the um, the origins of this section that I refer to as an opening. And again, sort of offering readers a series of different kinds of diasporic memory practices that I have been engaging with in terms of questions, questions that I have been asking um, myself about the war and sort of what it meant to actually return this to readers and have readers sort of engage with the text in a very different way um, than that, you know, they had been maybe engaging with the book, as you noted, sort of previously. Yeah, no, I really like the, the this, this ending or, you know, an opening. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, I think it did really kind of encapsulate a lot of things that you do talk about throughout the whole book and, and in, in a, in a kind of, uh, yeah, I guess in an affective way. Right. So mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. in that, you know, uh, when we're, uh, when we're experiencing, um, you know, in this case, um, you know, talking about thinking about the Korean war and its influences upon uh, those of us who were um, somehow, influenced mm-hmm. um it it is in these sort of fragmented ways right um mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. Really a linear narrative that um uh it, you know is is simple to kind of read through but that's not really how people experience this so i thought that the way that you did that right at the end um with these um uh writings and the photography really mm-hmm. sort of did that for me. So, um, so yeah, I, I like that quite a bit. Yeah. That's, that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So final question, what's next for you? What's your next project? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about sort of the next sort of stage, I guess, of my career and sort of the next project that I want to do. So, you know, in a ways, I was really sort of moved by this project as a whole, but especially by the second chapter, the orality, it's sort of, you know, rethinking my training as an oral historian quite a bit. And, um, you know, I had started a, a sort of new project about a year ago that focuses on the experiences, the very different experiences of multi-generational activists who self-identify as, you know, Korean American, as feminist or femme-identified, as queer, gender non-conforming, um, transgender. And I've done about 23 interviews or 24 interviews so far. But I think after working through this project, it really made me think about the oral history project in very different ways. So sort of in... in a very broad context. I'm working on this 
quote-unquote oral history project that focuses on sort of different forms of critical activism, primarily you know, with um, sort of Korean-American feminists, feminine-identified, uh, transgender, queer um, activists, but trying to rethink how I'm, how I'm conceptualizing the archive. So hopefully, you know, the archive that emerges um, will be experiential versus, let's say, a more traditional sort of archive um, of, of interviews. And that's still sort of information. So I'm still sort of thinking about what does an experiential archive look like? You know, what does it mean to create activist archives that are activist, right, in terms of not just content, but in terms of form and how we encounter them. How do we engage? Again, this is really drawing on from the powerful work of the Intergenerational Korean American Oral History Project. You know, what does it mean to deeply embed practices of reciprocity and return um, to these sorts of scholarly projects? And then maybe uh, as a last note, I've been thinking a lot about in relationship to oral history practice, um, property, in the ways that oral histories, you know, through different processes, especially when they're deposited into institutional archives or transformed into property, intellectual property, and try to um, really challenge that and conceptualize sort of um, different understandings of ownership that are not centered on intellectual property law. So in relationship to this archive. Um, so it's a really new project, but again, I think there are ways that it engages with some of the questions um, that I ask in this, in this first project. Yeah, I definitely see the connection there. Um, okay. Yeah, great. Um, I also want to note that um, I, I, you know, when I made the arrangement to uh, interview you, um, I totally neglected to realize that um, yesterday was uh, the commemoration mm-hmm. of um, the beginning mm-hmm. of the Korean War. So mm-hmm. I almost feel like this interview came just, you know, it's so just, timely. Yes, yeah, so very timely. So, yeah, um, I want to thank you so much, Crystal, for uh, your time. And uh, I really learned a lot just talking to you uh, about your book. You know, it's, it's a different experience when you're um, reading something and then also then talking to someone who actually produced the work. So I mm-hmm. uh, really appreciate that. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Laura. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. All right. Take care. Okay. You too. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.